Hello and welcome to Human Together, where each week we talk about topics related to the communal life. This is a podcast for people who agree it is not good to be alone, but secretly wonder whether it might be easier. If that is you, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I am your host, Sarah E. Westfall. And in this week's episode, I am joined by Drew Jackson. Drew is a poet, speaker, and public theologian. He is the author of God Speaks Through Wombs and Touch the Earth. Drew was formerly the lead pastor of Hope East Village in Lower Manhattan and now works as the director of mission integration for the Center for Action and Contemplation. He resides with his wife and twin daughters in Brooklyn, New York. I have appreciated Drew's poetry and presence both online and in his books, so it was a real joy to sit down and hear more of the stories that have formed his work. We also talk quite a bit about being honest about our questions, what it means to live a life of paying attention, and how to stay tender toward one another. You'll catch most of our conversation here, but if you're interested in the extended episode with Drew featuring some bonus conversation, I invite you to become a paid subscriber to Human Together on Substack. Not only will you be able to listen to the extended versions of each episode and support the podcast, helping us keep it ad-free, but you'll also gain access to regular essay series and our monthly book club. You can find all those details, including opportunities for complimentary subscriptions at sarahewestfall.substack.com. And now here's episode three, a conversation with Drew Jackson. Hey, Drew, I am so so thrilled to have you on the podcast today with me. I know I mentioned to you before this that I've been following your work um, both on Instagram and have read your book, but this is the first time you and I have been able to connect and have a conversation. So welcome. I'm so happy you're here. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on. Looking forward to to this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be good. Okay. So I know it is February and here in Indiana, we've had a lot of gray. (laughs) A lot of gray days here. Mm-hmm. You are in New York City. How are things in your part of the world right now? Also gray. Yeah. Also oh. gray. It's it's uh, been raining, drizzly. We had some snow in January. Hopefully that's over. I don't know. But yeah, pretty pretty gray, dreary. It hangs heavy on you. And sometimes I don't even realize it until we do get some sun. And then I'm just like, oh. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that there are a lot of us probably who don't even realize it, who struggle with like seasonal depression. There is something about the gray that, like you said, just hangs heavy. It really does. I mean, you can you can just feel it in your body. Okay, mm-hmm. so you are in New York City with your family. Mm-hmm. Are you born and raised in New York City? Or tell me a little bit about how you landed there. <laughs> yeah, so we've been in New York for six years. So we moved here in January of 2018. So I'll I'll come back to that. But I, I was born not too far in Jersey, but the southern part of New Jersey, just across the bridge from Philadelphia. I was there for most of my childhood, teenage years until the summer before my senior year of high school moved to Georgia. So the Atlanta area. And I finished my senior year of high school there, finished that high school and then moved to Chicago for undergrad and was there for four years. After undergrad, moved out to Los Angeles for grad school, for seminary. So I was out there for about three years. And then my wife and I, we had known each other since 
middle school, but reconnected. She moved out to L.A. We found out we were having twin girls and had no family on the uh, on the West Coast. So we were like, probably time to move back east. So moved to Pennsylvania, which is where her family was at. And we were there for about two and a half years before moving to New York. You have been a little bit in every part of the United yeah. States. <laughs> That's true, for sure. Oh my word. Well, I can imagine, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, that those were like four, or is it four or five distinct cultures within themselves? Yeah, I mean, every one of those places has its own distinct, unique culture, feel, vibe. It's pretty amazing, you, you, you know, having a chance to have lived in those places and yeah, every every place is its own, for sure. Right. Was your role as pastor what brought you then to New York City? Because I know you served as lead pastor for a church there for a while, correct? Yeah, so we moved to New York to plant a church. So we planted Hope East Village in the East Village neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. So it's like the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We started a community there, and it was um, a really, really wonderful beautiful time expression with a lot of people who were who would come to our community who had very similar stories of just like it's their first time back in church in like seven eight years a lot of people who had been hurt burned by the church who were just holding a lot of questions and just kind of dipping their toes back into the waters. And I feel like our community was a community of people who were holding a lot of questions. What was it like for you as a pastor to shepherd that type of community? It's real interesting. I, I think it was beautiful. I mean, just to be able to sit in those spaces with people who, who were wrestling with just a lot of different things and to learn to give myself permission to be in that space too. And I think this was also, to be honest, one of the struggles for me. Um, so I recently actually transitioned out of pastoring that church into a different role. I can talk about that in a little bit, but one of the, I mean, one of the, the wrestlings for me was always, even in a space where people are coming and holding a lot of questions, part of what our Western church culture has taught people is to orient to the pastor as, as the person with the answers. And so it is a real challenge to pastor from a place of unknowing, mm. to pastor from a place of just pure curiosity and wanting to be open to the mystery when people are demanding answers of you, especially at a time like, I mean, I stepped into that and then boom, we're in the midst of COVID and boom, we're in, you know, just a re a resurfacing of the depth of racial violence and terror in our country and just all the questions surrounding that and elections. And there's so many like cosmic level questions that people are holding. And it's like, you know what, I'm holding those two and I don't have answers. But yeah, it's really hard when like people just want you to give them an answer. What I've been learning is that it's actually the invitation into to come more deeply into the questions that is the space of real deep transformation. And I feel like that is actually the role of a pastor is to invite people to journey into those questions, to stay with them a little longer 
and not to just hand easy answers out. It sounds like that was probably not an easy thing to do. And this is just totally me within my own personality. I think that I could feel pressure to have answers for people or even just, you know, knowing the urgency that they feel like you want to fix it for them too, you -hmm. know? And so I can imagine that that took a lot of self-attention, self-awareness. What were some of the things that you had to do in order to stay in that space and not feel like you need to be the expert Mm -hmm. in those situations or conversations? Yeah, I I think um, really just coming to, like continuing to come to terms with my own limitations and being okay with that, learning to be okay with that. I think just certain practices for me, particularly the practice of um, silence, right? Of just being in that space beyond words, allowing myself to be present in all of the things that were rising up in me, to be fully present to the presence of God, and even to not come to God with, give me the answer, but here I am fully with all the questions, and it is enough for me to sit here Mm. and to be fully present. The practice of poetry, of writing and reading poetry is something for me that's also just so crucial to that. One of the things that really drew me to poetry again in that time was that when you're writing a poem, most of my writing had been sermon writing, right? And so when you're writing a sermon, like you're trying to make something clear, make something plain, you're trying, you know, and and there are points that you're trying to make and all of these sorts of things. Whereas in a poem, you have permission to just release all of that. In fact, the sort of instruction that you're given in writing poetry is to not do that. It's, it's like, don't sermonize in your poems. And that was freeing for me to be able to come to a poem with a question, with a wrestling, without the need for an answer, and to sort of let the poem unfold and go where it wanted to go. And I would... I've learned so much about myself from just writing in that way and seeing like, okay, where is, where is this question leading me? I, I don't know. It just, it just takes me to places that, that I, I wouldn't expect and I discover things. And so, yeah, so the practice of both reading and writing poetry has, was crucial for me and still is. Yeah. I love how you describe that because I think on the surface, we would see those roles as pastor and poet not necessarily to be competing, but just very different, mm-hmm. <laughs> different types of, for lack of a better word, callings. So our Human Together book club read your book, Touch the Earth, mm-hmm. um, together last fall. And one of the observations that was made is how your writing can be both at the same time challenging, but also invitational. And as a writer myself, I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> how, how do you hold that tension as a writer, but but also mm-hmm. as a person? Yeah. My first answer to that is I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Maybe it just flows yeah. out of who you are. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say for me, it really comes back to being really wrestling to be truthful. And when I say that, I mean both truthful to myself in the questions that I'm that I'm holding. So when I'm and also like the both and of 
observing, seeing, experiencing injustice, oppression in the world and naming it as such, but knowing also that I, I can never be completely separate from it, right? Like that I'm that that we're all so entangled and caught up in the things, even in the things that we experience toward us. And so the invitation is an invitation to myself, or it, first and foremost, is to to really participate in. It's like if we're if the invitation is toward a more loving way, I'm asking the question of myself: What does it mean to love? Hmm. What does it mean to be human? Right? What does it mean to to see differently, uh, and to offer that really without an answer, but to know that it's worth it to stay with the question. So yeah. I, I think it's, it's really just kind of approaching the poetry in that way and trying to be truthful with myself and not just say, like, the problem's out there, the problem's out there. Like, no, like, it's here. It's all here. And so how do I hold that and speak to it at the same time? You know, this is, it brings me then to to the question, and I think it's a question that many of us hold, is how then I can imagine you get some backlash or unkind words on occasion, maybe from readers, maybe from people on the internet. How do you stay tender then toward your fellow humans when they are not being perhaps kind to you in mm. in response to something you've written or said? It's funny because I have experienced more backlash in my preaching hmm. than poetry. Yeah. And I think I understand the reason for it is because poetry, poetry confronts us, but it does it in a different way than preaching confronts us. Right. Poetry is, I, you know, Emily Dickinson, she famously talks about telling all the truth, but telling it slant. Right. And so it's that way of poetry of coming around a side, like coming in the side door and saying something in a way that's not so in your face, but then you're in it and you start to realize like, oh, right, there's there's some things that are coming up here. You don't come to poetry in a guarded way as much as it, like you come to a sermon and you're you're thinking about this thing and that thing and this response and I don't agree with that. And I but poetry is like I, I know at least for me, when I read poetry, I don't read it from a do I agree with this or not. That's not the posture. And so I think that I don't know. I heard uh, Father Richard Rohr say one time that poetry is the art of the indirect, the undefended doorway into deeper consciousness. And so it's this this sort of we drop our defenses in a way when we come to poetry, when we come to I think art in general, there's a there's a dropping of our defenses. And so I think that's why I've experienced less like pushback from a poem and more of. I need to sit with that for a while. Like that's been the response that I hear more. But to your question of how do I like staying tender toward my my fellow humans? Yeah, I, I think that's a constant journey. If you ask me that tomorrow, it might be a different response. Right. You know, but I, I uh, came across the, a tweet earlier today. I don't even know if it's a tweet anymore. And an X. I don't even know. <laughs> Nobody knows. No, no one knows, right? <laughs> but the the poet Nikita Gill, she she said this, and I and so this would be my answer today of how I'm processing that. She said, she said, maybe if we understood that every single person we meet or see is grieving someone or will grieve someone 
the same way we know grief, we would all be slightly kinder to each other. Mm. And I've been sitting with that and thinking about how true that's been for me, just in terms of accessing my own grief. You know, with my mom having, she passed away just almost 11 years ago. And I've been grieving her this whole time and it's looked different in different seasons. But I've just over the years, over these past several years, become much more familiar with and acquainted with and intimate with grief. Mm. And the thought of knowing that in reality, every single person I walk past on the street is grieving somehow. Or as, as Nikita said, will grieve somehow like that. That's just a part of what it means to be human. Yeah, I think that that is one of those things that keeps my heart tender. So it's really been the the journey into my own grief uh, more than anything, because it, and I think this is even true, like as a writer, as a poet, there's all, all this conversation oftentimes around like writing in a way that is universal versus writing in a way that is specific and how what you discover is the more specific you get, the more universal something resonates. It's really like, let me go deeply into my own human experience in that there's this thread that we all begin to recognize that it's like, oh, you too. Oh, I'm there. I've been there. I'm there now. So yeah, I think that that's what's been really keeping my heart tender these days. I think that that's such a an important word for each of us to heat. I love, and I love the way that she, how, how she phrased that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so easy to go about our days and forget that. I think it was Leonard Sweet who said, every, every person is a story wrapped in flesh, that mm. they have this story that they carry with them um, on the street or to the grocery store or the school pickup line, which is some days the, the bane of my existence. Mm-hmm. But remembering that and not jumping to those those automatic conclusions or assumptions that are so quick sometimes. You have recently stepped into a new role. Mm -hmm. So you have been pastor, you are still poet, Mm -hmm. um, and now you are in a new role. Okay, it's director of mission integration. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? Yeah, so I'm working with the nonprofit called the Center for Action and Contemplation. So the CAC, for short, was founded by Father Richard Rohr in 1987. And, you know, he he talks about it as it as he first started it as a school for profits. Like he wanted to to invite people into the the tension of holding together action and contemplation. Right. And that he always says the most important word in our and our name is and it's holding holding those things together. And so the organization has been through a lot of transition over the years. And the biggest one recently is our founder transition as Father Richard's gotten older and transitioned out of his active, active roles within the organization. Um, there's just been a perpetual question for us of what is it going to mean for us into the future to stay mission driven and aligned with our values as we move into the future? How do we stay connected to, rooted in the the contemplative traditions? And so my role as director of mission integration is is really to help hold that question. Like I'm working with our staff. So we have about, I don't know, more or less 50 staff um, that work in different 
capacities and areas. And so I work with our, our staff across the organization to help us think about our mission alignment and values alignment, what sort of internal culture we want to build that is reflective of who we say we are, who we say we want to be, and do a lot of work with our, so we have four core values, humility, truthfulness, simplicity, and solidarity. And so the work of like translating that into organizational life and practice, like that's part of my ongoing work and that's what I'm doing. And it's been, it's been beautiful work. Yeah. So your role is essentially kind of taking those four filters and holding them up against everything that you're doing and conversations that are happening and saying, Mm -hmm. does this fit? Does this make sense? Through these lenses. Yeah, absolutely. We, it's paying attention to not just the what we're doing, but how we're doing it. How we do anything is how we do everything. It, you know, so it's, it's that paying close attention to those, those things. Yeah. What has that transition been like for you? Because you've, you know, you've held the hat of pastor. Yeah. Oh, you're in this new role. How do those things hold hands? What has that transition been like? The thread that I find among all of them is it really comes back to paying attention, right? And I mean, for me, poetry, that is sort of the heart of poetry is, I think what makes poets unique is that poets are, I wouldn't even say masters at, but like they are very curious about the things in life that are very easy to pass by, meaning the sort of very tangible things, the leaf on the ground that's blowing in the wind. It's like, okay, where did that come from? What's the name of that particular leaf? What particular tree did that come from? What's its story, right? So there's that particularity and attentiveness, but there's also like, how does that leaf blowing by on the ground, how is that making me feel right now? Why do I even care? What's drawing me to that? Right. And so that takes me down this long road into this memory. You know what I mean? So it's like it's that that deep attentiveness that I think really is what poetry is doing. But I feel like that is the heart of pastoral ministry, too. It's attention. It's attention to people, congregation, the ways that the spirit is moving in the midst of congregation, like the the refrain within the poetry of Revelation to listen to or to pay attention to what the Spirit is saying to the church is that level of attention. And um, so I think even within this new role, it's it's really just like deep attention to the ways that we are working with, operating around one another inside of our workplace culture. It's like real deep attention to our workplace culture and who we are and where we want to go. So I think that's that's the thing that keeps drawing me that Mary Oliver talks about attention all the time. And she talks about there's a a line in her poem, The Summer Day, where she says, I don't know what prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. Hmm. And the line is so thin. That's what it is. And so that's like this thread that runs through all of it. Yeah. I didn't prepare you for this question. So you are welcome to say pass. Mm-hmm. But for a listener who doesn't lean naturally toward paying attention, um, mm. toward contemplation, reflection, what would be some first steps to cultivating that type of attention in their own lives? Mm. There are so many different ways to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you can even say just what has been helpful for you or yeah. you've observed in others. There are so many different ways to answer that question because there are so many different human beings, right? And we're all 
wired differently to what would draw us in um, to that sort of attention. But I also think that there are reasons for being given practices that are meant to help us cultivate that sort of attention and that they are practices. So start with the really purely having lots of grace for yourself. And I know for me, right, as I mentioned earlier, there was something about the practice of silence and stillness that was super helpful for me in just learning how to pay attention because what it what it did for me was it invited me to to first pay attention to the fact that my mind is always racing and when I don't stop and pay attention it's just on this wheel there's always something always something and so the practice of silence says hey have you ever stopped to pay attention that your mind is always racing and even like without judgment it's just that's what it is And so then when you begin to realize that and you feel like all the thoughts are coming, the invitation is to say, how do I let the thoughts go by and not to cling to them, Mm. right? So that I can be present, not to this thought that I think, but who am I, right? Who am I in this moment? Not, I'm not this thought here that crept in in this moment. So that's been super helpful for me. And I would say, secondly, the practice of being in nature, Right. And slowing down enough to just be in it, which has been really hard for me living in New York City. I was going to say. (laughs) So, so challenging. But I think what I've noticed is there's something about the way that I'm wired that actually likes the challenge of what of nature and beauty can you see in the midst of this chaos? Right. And so that's been like a cool practice just to kind of lean into and um, is always inviting me into that practice of attention. So have fun with it, explore, and see what connects with you, see where that leads. And I love how you differentiated or used that word practice in terms of like, Mm -hmm. none of us are experts, those of us who practice things, right? We do not have things figured out. And what works for one person, like you said, may not be what works for another. And, mm-hmm. or even in seasons, I found seasonally like a practice yeah. that was really important grows stale for lack yep. of a better word and you have to change it up. So though, mm-hmm. that's good. I love those a lot. Okay. Our last question, and hopefully it's an easy one. <laughs> if there's somebody who's like, poetry is not my first love, but goodness, yeah. I want to give it a try. <laughs> mm-hmm. In addition to your own work. Mm-hmm. Of course, I can vouch for your own. <laughs> what are some like intro poets that you would recommend or some favorites of yours? Oh, yeah. I mean, Mary Oliver's great. You know, she's she's a, a great poet of attention. There's so many poets that, I, that have been, you know, really important to me. So people like Lucille Clifton, Tracy K. Smith. Uh, she's former poet laureate. Joy Harjo, former poet laureate, Natalie Diaz, and some of the work of Wendell Berry, I think specifically around some of his Sabbath poems, what he's done there. It's just really, really beautiful work. The poet Ada Limon, who's the current poet laureate of the U.S., she just does beautiful work around, as I was talking about grief, she has a, a collection called The Carrying that in particular has been really important for me as someone processing lots of grief. There's a line she has in one of her poems called The Vulture in the Body. In the poem, she's just kind of 
talking about some of her own health struggles and in particular infertility. And she has this line, and I'm not going to do it justice in terms of how it fits into the poem, but she, she says, ask the question, what if instead of carrying a child, I'm supposed to carry grief? Mm-hmm. And there's something about the way that that lands that's just like, whoa. And, and I would say for people who haven't found poetry as their first love language, I always tell people that poetry is like music, right? Every song you listen to, every artist you listen to is not your favorite artist, and you're not going to listen to them or resonate with them. But that hasn't stopped you from listening to music. You listen to music until you find the songs and the artists that resonate with your your soul, right? And so I'd say approach poetry in the same way. Keep reading different poets until you find the poems and you find the poets that are speaking your heart language that are resonating with you, that are invitational and all of these sorts of things. So just keep keep at it and don't come to the poem feeling like I have to understand this. Yeah. Even the understanding might be, I don't know what this means, but it made me feel something. Right. That's 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 doing something for you. That's doing something to you. Pay attention to that. Well, it's yeah. like, you know, any like you said earlier, any work of art, a painting, yeah. we can mm-hmm. be so drawn to it. And not have words for why not have <laughs> so words. often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think a lot of that, ha- it comes from how we were first taught to engage poetry in school, where it was very much from the standpoint of like, what does this poet mean? What are they trying to say? And oftentimes we're reading poets who are much older and coming from like, they're using language that's not familiar to us. And so it's like, ah, I don't, I don't get poetry. I don't know what they're saying. And it turns us off. Right. right. So. It's like reading the older versions of the Bible where you just get so lost in the language. You're like, I don't even know what's happening. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Drew, it's been so good to chat with you and just to hear more of your story, to hear about your, you know, life transitions and talk with you for a bit. I would love to connect people with you. So um, where can people find you either on the internets or otherwise? Yeah. Find me on Instagram at djacksonpoetics. That's probably, I mean, that's where I'm, at most of the time. I'm in some of the other places too, Facebook, X, Twitter. Whatever it is today. Whatever it is today. <laughs> uh, my, I have a website, drewejackson.com, and you can check out the, the two collections of poetry I have. Um, you can get them wherever you get your books. Yeah, and they're good. Yeah. I was in the rhythm last fall of reading poetry in the morning mm-hmm. as part of my kind of waking up process and it was a very good companion to me and to to others last fall so i i just want to say thank you for writing it thank you absolutely thank you for reading yeah drew thanks for being here it's been so good yeah it's been great thanks for having me on thank you for listening to human together if you resonated with today's episode i hope you'll share the show with a friend leave a rating or review to help others find us and come back next week for another conversation on the communal life. In the meantime, you can also find all the ways to connect with me and my work at sarahewestfall.com. Human Together is hosted by me, Sarah E. Westfall, and is produced and edited by Ben Westfall. The theme music is Sit With Me, written and performed by Sarah Scarborough.